coming up. And the only way to get velocity is is the treasury becomes the Fed, <laughs> and uh, and you have a direct injection. And at that point, look out for hyperinflation. It's time to take control of your money, your health, your time, and your life. I'm Jeff Neighbors. I'm Rachel Neighbors. Welcome to Self-Directed Life. Welcome. Today, we have an excellent episode in store for you, and it's all about how your most valuable asset is your time. And boy, is it worth your time to listen to this episode. Um, Today's guest is Jeff Booth, who's the author of The Price of Tomorrow. Yeah, Jeff Booth is a visionary leader who's lived at the forefront of technology change for 20 years. He led Build Direct, a technology company that aimed to simplify the building industry for nearly two decades through the dot-com meltdown, the 2008 financial crisis, and many waves of technological disruption. Jeff has been featured in Forbes, TechCrunch, Inc.com, The Globe, Mail, BNN, Fast Company, Entrepreneur, Bloomberg, Time, and The Wall Street Journal. All the places. Yeah, pretty much. He's amazing. In 2015, he was named BC Technology Industry Association's Person of the Year. And in 2016, Goldman Sachs named him among its 100 most intriguing entrepreneurs. And he is incredibly intriguing. Very intriguing. What I love about this episode, we we just recorded it, so we know what's in it for you, uh, is that Jeff's story and the way that he explains it and the way that he's written about it in the book, not his personal story, but his putting the pieces together of what's going on in the world right now, it actually has pretty much all the pieces. You know, there are so many places you can go to and people you can listen to where they have one piece of the puzzle. And the value of that piece and what it's going to do for you is really only going to be, uh, it's going to be limited by how many more pieces of the puzzle that you're missing, right? So you might learn a little bit about the Federal Reserve or inflation or this part of economics or that part of technology. But what he does is he brings it together in a unified vision that makes sense and jives with reality. So without further ado, you're in for an excellent episode with Jeff Booth, author of Price of Tomorrow. All right, Jeff, uh, thanks for joining us. Welcome. Thanks very much for having me. Let me just kind of come out of the gates with, you know, the understanding that most people have this belief that inflation can be good, Uh, But if it gets too high, it's bad. And then deflation is just something that happened in the Great Depression, and it's terrible. Uh, You have a different view. Can you kind of share what that view is kind of in a nutshell? Yeah, what I would say is a lot of people think um, I I, uh, so a lot of people take what I would say and say, no, we need inflation. No, we that that's kind of not the point. Of the point is, technology creates de- deflation. Period. Technology makes things cost less. Period, and it's on an exponential advance across society. It also removes labor as you do as it does that. So, anything stopping that is unnatural for society and concentrates wealth, power, everything else, um, and destroys kind of the, the capitalism or free market type of uh, system. So if you dig a little deeper, let's just say, what is inflation? What is deflation, right? Inflation is when the value of your currency is worth less over time um, because goods and services uh, rise in, 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 in price. And deflation is the opposite. 
value the currency is worth more as goods and services cost less. So any rational human being kind of making a decision on their own would say, wait, deflation is actually a good thing for me, right? But then when we ladder that up into a society that works on inflation, um, we say, no, 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 we need inflation. Right. So that's the, that, that kind of pro, pro produces an incongruence. Right. So what's right, what's wrong? There is no right or wrong. It's just different winners and different losers. Right. And so if you inflation for a government or inflation for asset, let's go first government. Inflation is a hidden tax on society. Right? You can't you can't charge what the taxes should be to keep on building more and more government. So because people would revolt, taxes would be too high. So you hide that tax in inflation and you pick the pockets. But the problem is you pick the pockets of the most of the people who can't afford to pay for it, right? So if you're, uh, by inflation, assets go up a lot and if you um, because the money is being devalued in, in real terms and you pay back the debt in cheaper money tomorrow. So, and, and, and deflation is the opposite of that scenario. So all you have it is different winners, different losers. The, the problem as it, as it stands today is central banks all over the world missed a structural change to society. Technology is driving a deflationary force in such a crazy amount and it's exponentially doing so. The governments are adding debt that can't be paid back at a rate corresponding the natural order of what technology is doing to try to drive inflation rates because otherwise you have a debt default right you have a depression and so so we have we we're sitting in a, a time in in history where there are no good solutions to the other side yeah that makes a lot of sense i want to read a quote from uh, from your a book, The Price of Tomorrow, uh, that we selected that we thought also um, is a sort of a good introduction to these concepts. And the quote says, our economic systems were not built for a world driven by technology where prices keep falling. They were built for a pre-technology era when labor and capital were inextricably linked, an era that counted on growth and inflation, an era where we made money from scarcity and inefficiency. That era is over but we keep on pretending that those economic systems still work. Do you think that, uh, do you see any signs of, you know, any central banks uh, realizing that, that that era is over? Well, let's, let's, let's kind of say, um, even if they could, I, 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 you see this from the, in, in an example in the book, but exponential is really hard to understand. Right, or, and and so I use a paper folding analogy to demonstrate what's happening. And and if, if you fold a piece of paper piece of paper on itself once, twice, three times, four times, and keep going, up to fifty times, I, I've asked tens of thousands of people all over the world this question, and I say, how thick would the piece of paper be at fifty folds? Obviously, some people say you can only fold at seven, which is true. But imagine you could keep folding. How thick would the piece of paper be at 50 folds? The piece of paper would be from here to the sun. And no one in 10,000 people... People think it's like this. Exactly. Everybody guesses that. Yeah. And Rachel, that's the, that's the point. I don't do it as a parlor trick. 
and everybody, once you hear the answer, will know the answer and you'll know it next time. And you'll think you know what exponential looks like. But I, I use it to demonstrate everybody gets fooled by it. Right? And, and if, you, if you layer that into what's happening in technology, technology is moving on that same exponential path. And the reason why we overestimate technology, what it's going to do in the early folds, is for the same reason. We, we think it's going to do this, and it shows up as the tiny little sliver of a change. But it keeps folding. It keeps doubling. It keeps doubling. And then when, once you're in the big steps, you miss it the other way by a margin, by, by a wide margin. So if you compare those two analogies, we're, uh, we're on fold 33 going to fold 34 in 18 months. And so all of the doubling that's happened in technology, the power in your phone, what you're seeing with self-driving cars when you're always, that's, that's looking backwards and you're forecasting linearly looking mm -hmm. forwards. And so what evidence do we have that that's happening to our economies as well? Let's just look for empirical evidence that that's happening in the economies. So, cause we can see it in the prices and the abundance that's coming from our phones, Google searches and everything else. But why can't we see that power everywhere, right? Why can't we see that more for less everywhere? And it's because it's being masked with debt creation and monetization of debt at the same magnitude. So, so last year, before kind of uh, we, uh, before before COVID, um, we had two hundred and fifty trillion dollars of debt to run an eighty eighty trillion dollar world economy. Now the world economy is smaller. And the debt is magnified by that same amount. So how much of the debt has been added in the last 20 years to stop natural forces, right? And $185 trillion of the 250 has been added in the last 20 years. And all of that concentration, so if you wanted to double check it the other way and see what would the natural order of things look like, Remove $180 trillion, $85 trillion of stimulus and ask yourself, what would house prices look like? And you start to see the real truth underlying this. And then the next thing that you have to ask is you have to ask, okay, if it took $185 trillion to marginally increase the global economy, can that debt be paid back? And we all know the answer, it can't be, right? So... So all you're doing by adding debt is pulling demand from the future because taxes must go up to pay for that debt. So it has to collapse the economy later to pay for the debt. But $185 trillion, and then we're talking about staggering amounts in relation to, the, to what's happening. And it's exploding the other way, matching what's happening to technology going this way. So then the next question is, what are you going to do if you can't pay the debt back? And that's kind of where we're entering into the world economy today and what people are trying to do. And as a byproduct, we're driving massive wealth inequality in the hands of very few. In fact, we're, we're, we're redlining technology companies because that's a store of value as against. <laughs> so the money that we're printing is going directly into those to remove jobs faster. And we're breaking the societal contract um, by not by, by not adhering to capitalism and letting the system cleanse itself. And yeah, I want to I want to make the connection. I think that a lot of people have not yet made that you just did, which is when you um, bring to the table that inflation is a hidden tax, 
Um, a lot of people start thinking about that as this attacks on wealth, but of course, no, it's attacks on everyone who uses dollars, which is everyone who uses money in the world because it's a global reserve currency. If you really start to connect the dots, uh, they're worse off than they were 10 years ago. Just, you know, everyone on the lower socioeconomic uh, side of the spectrum and asset owners are better off. And that's, that, that's what you mean, right? By when you're talking about the widening of the wealth gap caused by inflation. Exactly, Jeff. Like, so I, I'm in the camp, I'm one of the winners. I own technology companies. I own lots of assets. The asset owners also own most of the value in stocks. And so as you inflate away, the value, those, those values go up by the same amount, right? They actually go up faster by that same amount. But if you're working for wages, $15 an hour or $20 an hour, and, and your rents have doubled and your wages haven't doubled, you're getting your pocket picked to, to run that equation. And so socialism, UBI, all of these fen- phenomena that we're seeing are natural uh, and, and racism and everything else is a natural phenomenon of this discussion. And if you look back through history, it's like a pendulum going back and forth throughout history that, uh, that you can predict what's going to happen next uh, through revolutions and everything else as a result of that pendulum. If all the wealth is concentrated with very few people, those few people, there's nowhere to hide. It will be taken back through force. So, so you have two ways to two two ways to run um, effectively economies with with scale uh, scale economies with as as big populations as we have. Two, so the only two ways to run at scale: one, free markets, right, where labor labor and capital go go to the most efficient use of that capital. Two, um, through power. All roads that aren't free to free markets and in, uh, as Navelle said, the biggest thug, you consolidate through force. And if you look at through the U.S. today and, and other countries today, that's what you see happening on both sides of the aisles. Okay? Because if, and I, I'm not saying this is good or bad, it's just predictable, right? So it is bad. But, uh, but we could go into the solution set, which is also bad too on the way through. <laughs> um, the uh, um, but what I'm what I'm saying is, if you can't pay your rent, if you can't, and you're moving out in the street, and your family can't eat, pay food, what would you do, right? And and it's really predictable. And if somebody, if a if a government then says, oh no, it's not your fault, it's those people's fault, you, what would you do? Right. It's very predictable. Human nature is very predictable. So and this is what we saw in Nazi Germany, isn't it? Exactly. And many times throughout history before. Mm-hmm. So <clears throat> on the, the gauntlet through this, uh, I see overt default on the debt, covert default on the debt through hyperinflation and some sort of jubilee. There's only two paths. So there, there's the two paths that you just mentioned. Um, there's let uh, let capitalism work. Don't don't lose your, your currency, right? Don't, don't is um, is is you're going to have a deflationary depression. Asset prices would fall eighty to ninety percent across the board, and people with cash would pick up unbelievable values. It would be, but it would be ugly because in that event too, all the banks would fail too. 
it would so so that's the that's that's what the government and once it starts it just feedback it's it's a feedback mechanism in fact it's the same thing in 2008 it's just what ended up happening at each one of these 2000, 2000, 2008, 2016, now again, each one of these events is causing the, the, the solving debt with a bigger debt problem, right? And, and now you're getting the other thing that you said, okay, we, now we're going to have to create helicopter money or something. That hasn't happened yet. So for the government keeps on, what they're doing right now is actually more disinflationary in, uh, in nature. Because the money is just going into asset price inflation, right? And it's being robbed from from true economy growth by the, by, by doing that. So, and and then you have to pay back that debt if if it's this existing function. You have to pay back that debt, which means it has to collapse the economy later. So, so expect after this round, which won't work, right? All the all the what's had to expect the treasury to become involved. And getting and, and driving helicopter money, which then you're going to start losing currencies over and over through hyperinflation, a different type of debt default. This episode is sponsored by Solo401k.com. Solo401k is a special retirement plan for entrepreneurs. Your Solo401k can unlock your retirement funds to invest directly in alternative investments, such as real estate, precious metals, Bitcoin, private equities, private debt, startups, and more. You can combine alternative investments with tax-deferred or tax-free growth. You get the tax benefits of a normal IRA or 401k, but with access to alternative investments. Plus, your tax-deductible contributions can be up to $60,000 per year. You can even be your own bank and borrow up to $50,000 tax-free to start or grow a business, pay off debt, buy equipment, gear, or toys, or for any reason. All this using Solo401k.com. To learn more about reducing your taxes, investing in alternatives, and being your own bank to finance your dreams, visit Solo401k.com today. One of the most fascinating things with, with this topic, both from uh, your book, the, the thing that st- stands out to me from that and from just my personal experience of bracing for the 2008 crisis starting in 2006, is that when you know the outcome, you tend to think that it should happen at a certain pace or timing, and it always seems to take much, much longer. Uh, we just watched a documentary last night about these guys that spun off from Apple, created this general magic company, and they basically conceptualized a smartphone in 1990, totally failed because all the supporting tech wasn't there. And of course, the, the smartphone uh, you know, came about 17 years later. So do you think that there's another round of this, this new cycle of 2000, 2008, 2020? Do you think it could happen again in 2030 or do you think this is kind of the last one and and what would you guesstimate uh the the time frame in which you know hyperinflation could really emerge so that's that is really a hard question to to answer (laughs) because because it depends on a lot of that is the political will which will Mm -hmm. be driven from the social right so so by the time that happens um there's gonna be blood on the streets 
right? Because on both sides of the, the, the it's on, it, you, we're building more and more instability into the system. And by doing so, we prevent the natural clearing functions. But the natural clearing functions, because we've done this for so long now, are st- it, it would it's so painful for society. the deflationary crash, the depression. It's so severe. Painful. So, so all you have, people aren't dealing with this on a first principles basis. Like, so just and they're saying, okay, this is our new economy. This is what it looks like. Let's transition and what that looks like. They're they're saying, nope, we can't let that happen. We're going to keep. Doubling down, doubling, doubling down. Now, so you have a global economy that requires kind of trade, and every company, every country is comp- driving competitive devaluations of the currency. Everyone, um, and so, so how long can that go on, go on? People say, "Oh no, Japan did it for years." They were well; they were the only ones, and they had savings. Now they have to externally finance their debt. So we'll see how much longer, right? So people, people use examples without looking at examples throughout history. No country ever gets away with it forever. Going back to Roman <laughs> Empire, going back ever. It's never happened over time that a, a country can do this, uh, nor the world can do this. But in silos, um, you're right. It could go on for longer than you have, than, than you think. U.S. dollar might get stronger because we know that China has to print. We know that uh, uh, Europe has to print. We know that Japan needs to print. Everybody is printing. So, so, so you're going to see people not printing, not and, and, and currencies getting stronger, weaker, and a result of all of that. And I can't say when people completely lose faith in each one of the currencies, but I can say it's all it's a hundred percent. That, that happens across the board. It's it's almost uh, just a pure psychological um, element because it's like when does the meme spread of whatever would cause people to lose faith in the currency? Because you know, intellectually, the information is there and the history is there, the precedence is there for anyone who looks into it to then lose their faith in the currency. Uh, to, I was to say something. I'm yeah, sorry, to interrupt. I was going to say something similar to just this point that you're touching on, Jeff, and yeah. and Jeff Booth. In your book, since we have two Jeffs here, um, in your book you talk a bit about psychology and cognitive biases and confirmation biases. So it's it's not surprising, although it is a bit disheartening, what you're saying that people are only looking at examples that are proving their point. Right? They're looking mm. at examples what the thinker thinks, the prover proves. They're looking to examples that bolster. Um, their point of view so that they don't have to face this scary well, future. And gosh, think about this echo chamber that is everybody's algorithmically curated exactly. social media feed that exactly. no matter what they believe, they're only going to feel better by more of that confirmation bias, which is essentially what Google, Twitter, Facebook, and everybody is using to grab that attention to sell it to advertisers. Uh, how do you square that, Jeff, on, um, you know, I'm a big believer in, in tech, but we all, we're also... Uh, at this point where, where what we just described with the algorithm creating that confirmation bias echo chamber, like w- where do you see the light at the end of the tunnel on how people can start um, using technology to serve them and, and be yeah, the master? And, and you know, because I wrote extensively about it in, in, in the book, right? What you're talking about. It, it's a, it, the, the algorithm isn't 
trying to do bad, by the way. It's a feature of the system in trying to get you not to, to serve you results you'll click on rather mm -hmm. than you won't click on. The problem with the feature of that system is it removes conflicting evidence, right? That, that it, and, and it's up to you to what you're, I would say, the things that you don't believe in, go and look and explore them from a first principles perspective, right? So that's actually, I think the way the book was written in a way that understood that I have biases, you do, everybody does, um, was a way to, to, instead of taking a stand one way, to, to allow people to explore it to, to, from a first principles. Is this true? What have you been taught your whole life? What do you read over and over and over again? And what do you completely believe? And if that's true, by the way, if that's true, you build a foundation of knowledge. And all of your other knowledge stacks on top of that, and you never question it again. But what if it wasn't true? Right. And so, and, and then everything else that you've built your foundation of knowledge on, it crumbles with the foundation. And so by thinking in first principles, by thinking, why, why, why is that true? You get to the root of, okay, is the, and, and then you can construct what, what things should look like. So if you do that in media, if you do that in everything else, and you follow some of these a little deeper, you're bound to find the answer by looking at various, uh, uh, various different viewpoints on it. And looking at the viewpoints not as, I'm going to defend mine at all costs. Looking at the what could be positive about that other viewpoint, for, just so you can uh, it's intellectual curiosity. But it's a, but well, everything's coming to you, and you just click on the clickbait thing, things, and you keep doing it. You get further and further away from that. So, how do you mm -hmm. use technology? The world's information is being aggregated, and 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 it's all it's all there more and more all the time. The amount of information. If you truly are curious today, you can learn you can anything find it. about anything. Yeah, it's that curiosity that you look around and not a lot of people are encouraging you to have it, but if you dig deep and find it and act on it, then you might click on something that doesn't agree with what you already think, and then maybe the algorithm will help you explore that more. Yeah, and, and Jeff, it is based on that. And, and this, anytime you're getting it's those people the Fed, it's those, it's, it's those, those poor people, so the people on the street, it's those people, those black people, all of those things. It's easy to bite because we always, we, we, we group, right? We want to be on our group and we look across everything else. If you think that, look deeper on the core, on the core premise that is driving all of that because you're likely wrong. Um, you're, you're likely being, um, and so, if you go deeper on what's driving all of it, like this, this topic, what we're talking about, technology deflation and technological deflation, it's as simple as this. If technology is moving, if technology is deflationary, and it clearly is, right, um, and it's exponentially deflationary, then nothing else matters, right? We either find a way to live with that and then live with prices falling as jobs come out of the society, or we don't, and we've reset through war, revolution, and war. Nothing else matters. So we keep people go, oh no, no, we need inflation. We need oh, great. I needed a red bike for Christmas when I was seven, and I never got it. <laughs> um, we don't need <laughs> the uh, um, what's what's true. What's true, and then and then what should we do about that truth to be able to 
both personally, if this is going to happen and there's going to be a reset coming, where should you invest? Where should you look at uh, uh, But more importantly, how do you help steer the world into what, where we're going without falling victim to it's all those bad people making it, uh, making it like this? Sure. So the circles that you uh, have some overlap with include circles of Bitcoin people. Where do you see Bitcoin intersecting with uh, this whole thesis? And, and and you know, again, from the book, I, Bitcoin's a small mention in the book at the end of the book, and it's a derivative of looking at first principles. Um, it's not a book, Bitcoin book. Um, it's a, But that being said, I don't see a better life raft in, in anything I look at. Um, and I'll go into some re- uh, reasons for that, but but I see I, I see it to, to this point as being irresponsible not to hold some in your portfolio. It's it's that big a, it's that big a deal. Um, I, I it, um, it I and it's not from an asset it's is from an asset performance too. If I had to pick one asset and, and everything had to be in one, it's the only one I'd pick. Um, yep. The and. That sounds bold. I don't have to do that, right? And and so I wouldn't I wouldn't do that. But but it's that I think it's that important. And so so when you look at throughout history, you you kind of ask, why don't people that see this coming move move some of their wealth? Right? You, in Weimar Republic, wheelbarrows full of money. Um, hate crimes everywhere. Um, you could see it coming. You could see the discourse and political parties is right blamed left, left blamed right, everything. Else. You could see it coming. You could see it coming in Venezuela. You could see it coming in Lebanon. You can see it coming in Turkey right now. You can see it coming everywhere. So why don't people pick up and move? Right? And because they typically denominate their entire wealth in that country's currency. Housing, real estate, business um uh, so all of their uh, their cash everything so there's a network effect to the legacy money essentially exactly and and so they stay in and all of their wealth is concentrated and they don't see the systematic debt wealth destruction that concentration of wealth there produces and and so by leaving so so they sit there with their wealth and and they say okay well and they long for days gone past they don't realize it's going to get worse so, so they get involved in poli- politics and everything else, contribute to the divide for, uh, further, and, and, and it keeps getting worse and worse uh, past this, and they don't see it happening. By the time they want to leave, they would have to leave and be a refugee in a new country with nothing. Right? That's why people don't leave. Bitcoin is the opposite of that. You can remember 10 words, and you can move anywhere. Right, the 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 um, it it produces a life raft that that governments are going to have to accept Bitcoin. Some governments are going to try to lock it down. Some go, by doing so, they enable other governments to say, "No, we're going to build," <laughs> because every government everywhere on the world wants to attract wealthy, wants to attract uh, wants to attract a higher tax base and everything else. Mm-hmm. I can right now buy it for two hundred and fifty thousand a golden visa for my family in Portugal. Right. That same thing is going to take place on Bitcoin um, as as this moves over, but 
it's a, it's a store of value that can be confiscated. Yeah, that's definitely what caught my attention when I first got into Bitcoin. Um, that and I was noticing that gold was getting manipulated and there were some books coming out kind of smoking gun of that. And then I and they were getting manipulated on the supply side. And then I remember going, oh, maybe Bitcoin supply can't be manipulated. So uh, the other side of that, if you, if, if you go one deep, so gold today has its $12 trillion market cap. Bitcoin has, what, $770 billion market cap. Why does gold have a $12 trillion market cap? And it's not because of jewelry. It's because people think it'll be pegged currency again. And I suspect it won't be. It was it was the best pegged currency. Right? I just In 46. It, that right? was going to be my next question, it, Jeff. It's just, it, it just not anymore. There's yeah. a better network effect currency because to hold gold, to restore the... I'm not going to take my gold bar on an airplane and then shave it off for ice cream in my new country, right? Yeah. Um, so, so you need custodians that hold gold, and the the risk is at the custodian. Just like just like when the U.S. defaulted on on the gold reserve, the risk is in the custodian, right? Right. And, and so, Bitcoin removes that risk. So yeah, Bitcoin-backed currency then would be true. Yeah, I mean, it's it's, it's almost money. like this a game of musical chairs, and when the music stops, everyone needs their Bitcoin chair, and the first major country to back their currency with Bitcoin uh, stops the music for everyone. Um, I so yes, I think that that's going to happen. I think it's going to happen in a. I think right now you're having a, a bunch of early adopters in and that moves to businesses that moves to smaller governments. Like there's actually more of an incentive for smaller governments to do this and, um, earlier because sure. you on, on the well and, and that moves more and more, more and more people. But, but Bitcoin works. Um, 70% of all value of technology companies is built on a network of the, the internet is the biggest, one of the biggest network effects we've ever seen. A lot of the value sitting on technology companies is a network effect, and Bitcoin is a network effect. For those who are uh, wondering what a network effect is, what's the simple explanation you have for that? Um, and I use this one in the book, but if, if I have a phone and I'm the only one with a phone, it's useless. If you add a, if, if you add a phone, it adds value to both of us. The network becomes stronger. The Rachel and adds one is stronger. And you can mathematically understand how much value for all of us is being derived from each new additional uh, connection to the phone, phone network. It's the same thing on, on, on the internet. It's the same thing on a lot of the companies like Google or, or Amazon. And it's the same thing on Bitcoin. And it's that exponential thing that's so hard for people to understand. So the same way people don't see that paper being folded to the sun, uh, they also see Bitcoin go from one penny to $1,000 and go, it can't possibly go higher. And they're simply, it's been too long since they went two times two and then just kept pressing the equal button on their calculator to, uh, to recognize the exponential nature. Is there anything, um, you know, some people seem to, when they look at Moore's Law, think that maybe it's slowing down. Are there other elements of, of exponential uh, growth patterns happening in technology uh, that you see, you know, maybe with AI? 
Yeah, so absolutely. And you know, I go through this extensively in, in the book. So, so on a podcast, you can only go about this deep on exponential, right? <laughs> so, right. but and nature tends to follow S curves. And so, so some of the, some of the other things that are coming into and AI is one of them. The digitization of industry after industry is another, but some of the uh, quantum computers after that is, is another. And so, so could, Moore's Law slow and then go up again. It won't matter because it'll feel to what we're talking. It will feel exponential in nature. The speed is the speed will blow people's mind. I I'm at the front edge of this in all of the companies I'm I'm in, research in the universities and everything. And and what I see, even though if that's not widely distributed yet, it's it just blows my mind. It just it's it's incredible what's coming. Did you see that GPT-3 news a couple yeah. months ago? Yeah. That was wild where, um, so it's a program, a, a language program, and there you can just give it a couple sentences, like a headline, and then it'll write a whole article. And there was some kid who had an article written and it became one of the top blog posts on like uh, some some aggregator somewhere and uh, just kind of, you got to wonder what GPT five is going to bring. <laughs> yeah. And then if you understand that the only, and, and so that's still kind of deep learning as a, as associated with artificial intelligence. And there's a whole bunch of other things that are taking different pieces of artificial intelligence to make the next leap. Um, but all that that is, is an essentially a way bigger data set and it can do things that blow humans away. Right on, on, even if it doesn't understand what it's doing, it can write, right? It can write, it, and, and we would look at the article it would write, and it would go, wow, <laughs> right? It's not written by a human. And so some of these things just, and, and a lot of times people will look at the one innovation and not understand what it does with another innovation coming from over here at the same time. Entrepreneurs, that's where a lot of times entrepreneurs create all this value. And they don't see it narrowly. They combine different things. And it's that creation of value on the other side. But those, those things are reducing labor. At a, will reduce labor at a crazy rate. Go ahead. What, do you, what are some things that our listeners who are you know, mostly self-directed investors who for some time, whether it's months or years or over a decade, have been um, you investing in alternative assets? And so these topics get their attention. What do you think we can all do to sort of contribute to you know, a more peaceful uh, outcome uh, besides uh, buying copies of your book and giving it to everybody that we know? <laughs> Which we also um, the, I, I would say um, one of the things is buy Bitcoin and understand why that's uh, why that's valuable the faster people understand it and, and hold it I, I hope by the way I hope that it happens slowly so that we can build uh, so that we can build the infrastructure to support and I'm talking about the community the value the, the government infrastructure to support if some people in the Bitcoin community want to go to a million dollars tomorrow can you imagine what what society would look like in the, that we're not ready. brutal yeah, it would just. Yeah, we're not ready. You would you would not be able to go to like you wouldn't be able to go anywhere if you have the wealth because people will want to eat you alive. Exactly. It would look yeah. so. So I truly believe that we're entering into where technology is going, where our world could look like Star Trek, 
And I know that sounds science fiction, everything else where, where, um, but, but technology is supposed to make our time more valuable. That's why we use it. That's why every CEO, every CEO I'm working with is using technology is trying to make the world a better place through technology. But when you add up how fast that's moving and these and what they're doing with technology, I'm sure no one wants to get rid of Google or their cell phone or anything else or all the free apps they get on their cell phone. Right? We want that. The problem is through central bank actions, we're, we're destroying the value of our time. Right? time we're, we use technology to make our time more valuable, period. Right? And that it reduces labor. So why are we fighting so hard to artificially keep asset prices high so that we have to work harder and on a mouse wheel to pay for those asset prices that were artificially created in the first place? I'm going to give you another example of kind of how fast this is moving. You know, many of your listeners will know, many of the tech companies went, hey, work from home forever. We're closing down our, uh, our offices and everything else. And, and the Zoom call and what's happening with technology, even today, um, means how much of how much is commercial real estate overvalued? Right? So Only by ninety yeah. percent. Yeah, exactly. But if fifty percent <laughs> of if fifty percent of it in, is in use, and a lot of those companies aren't coming back, those people aren't coming back, then commercial real estate must fall by fifty percent. Right. So why hasn't it fallen by fifty percent? Because if the it falls by, because 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 of the Federal Reserve action and everything else propping up those asset prices, and so by doing so. New companies can't come in and revitalize revitalize something. Those assets are priced high, and they have to create more money through socialism that they don't have to give to the people to pay for the high asset prices. Right? It, like if you think about what's happening at this, and now that's phase one. Phase two is this: as a business, I've owned lots of businesses. If 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 you can the the um, you'll get the best labor at the best price wherever the labor exists. So now if you, it's work from home, a lot of people are so in a box that they say, oh, okay, well, it's still going to be really good here because there's going to be so much labor created out of this and I can work from home. They've missed the point that I can move that to India, Bangladesh. Africa. Yeah, now there's a level playing field. Now, And, and that's deflationary. Yeah. And it's massively deflationary and more, and, and, more, and more jobs come out of society. And those jobs, and those jobs that are coming out of society against unnaturally priced assets, where somebody falls from here to the street and can't can't feed their family, they're going to rise up and take it back. Right? It's so predictable. Yeah, I mean, the American worker is essentially an unnaturally priced asset uh, on the on the global scale. If they're if if the if the work from home person in San Francisco now needs to compete with a coder in India. Uh, you know, the the India uh, person is going to win, um, and and the business that doesn't hire the India person is going to lose because they can't compete with the one that does. You had, I, yeah, I'd actually to like to touch to touch a little bit on on unemployment because I have a couple of questions about this or the loss of labor due to so technology causes this deflation, which then removes jobs from society. So sorry, so so the technology removes the jobs anyways. Yes. It's not the deflation that removes the jobs. So so that's the important difference. It removes the jobs anyways. And by holding an inflationary mindset, you just make those people worthless. They just fall so far off the the path that, that, that kind of that divide 
becomes predictable. And part of the way, and thank you for that clarification, and part of the way that that technology is removing jobs is because it's technology increases efficiency, right? Exactly. Um, and increases things like automation and AI. So we work with a lot of entrepreneurs. What would you say to a young person, to kids who are maybe hearing from their parents that the old guard of the industrial era is, you know, still what they need to do and go to that four-year college and, you know, get ready to work the job for 40 years and get the gold watch. That's changing. What do you say to young people that are listening? Um, so I have three kids. And one of the reasons I wrote the book is, is saying they're not going to live in the world that I lived in or grew up in. They're not going to, it's not going to look the same unless really smart people come together and, and start to talk about how could this look in the future, right? So that's, that's, uh, that's one. What I tell my kids, um, by the way, there is still tons of opportunity, staggering amounts of opportunity. I am a, uh, like, I see it, there's tons of opportunity. So what I tell my kids is, you have to, um, here's my lesson. The person that started my first technology company isn't the person you see today. Mm. The, the, and most of what, what ended up happening through that ride was, was learnings that kind of internal locus of control thing. I would hit a wall, hit a wall, hit a wall, try creative, try to get around it. And if you didn't get around it, your business was over. It, um, a lot of those getting around it were actually changes in me I needed to make. So if you, if you have crazy curiosity and you look at yourself as you can, you can do anything with your time and you don't blame others for any, all of those things. If you look inward and say, it's up to me, then you learn faster. The minute you blame somebody else, you remove your ability to need to learn. So I, so to me, it's around curiosity. I don't actually don't care whether it's school or anything else. It's around curiosity. I still read 50 books a year. Um, and I have since I was 18 years old. Um, and, and so that curiosity and again, uh, internal opus control, no blame. I'm responsible. I 100% agree. Yeah. There's so much opportunity out there, but it's a learning opportunity and learning, like you said, happens inside yourself. You don't change the external world. You change yourself as a response to banging up against that wall. Self-responsibility, right? Yeah. Well, that's what, that, that's what a free market actually provides, right? So if you think about what entrepreneurs do, you work with a bunch of entrepreneurs. Um, that's what they, like, it's a, it's a bloody war. It's a competitive battle. And that competitive battle is, is about creating value for other people, right? And if you're wrong, if you don't do that well, you go broke and start again. That's what it looks like. And so, so you have to do, if you're going to be an entrepreneur, you better have some, some thick skin and be able to go uh, through that war. It's really hard. Um, and it forces you to, you, you to change. Yeah, I, I just wanted to touch one more aspect on the um, the unemployment part, um, which is, you know, well, hang like, on. Well, I just, I just want to say this. Right when you say use. unemployment, yeah, that's not, that's you word. draw us back into the old paradigm, which assumes that everyone needs a job and that the concept of the job needs to look like the old job. Thank you. What did you, what was the alternative way we were talking about it? Uh, just... Um, you know, loss of jobs due to technology. Yeah. Anyway, sorry. So, no, I appreciate that correction. Thank you. What, you know, it almost becomes, 
because you've touched a little bit on psychology in, in the book as well, you know, when you first meet someone after you ask their name, one of the first things that you ask them is, what do you do? Yeah. So really, I'm wondering how this reconciles with that, or if maybe we'll be able to explore more entrepreneurship or creativity. And instead of what do you do, it's, you know, how are you producing or what are you um what are you spending your time on? Time on? Exactly. So, so, so that's it. The most valuable thing in our life is our time. We trade our time for, for work so that one day we can retire with enough so we can enjoy our time. Right. On, on a mouse wheel that's moving faster and faster and faster, trying to push prices up so we can so we work more and more and more to try to get to that point where we can enjoy more of our time. And that's all. And, and, so it doesn't seem logical, right? When you put it that, put it that way, when I value, and and then it further, if the most thing, valuable thing is your time, technology gives you an abundance more time. Why aren't we letting that happen? Right. The it it, it, yeah. it, it, just, it it I know it's upside down for a lot of your listeners because they haven't read the book and and they haven't uh, they haven't explored these things. And it really is hard to, you want, a lot of people will protect the status quo at all costs because what does that mean to me? Right. And, well, they're and, so entrenched in that old paradigm. It's so entrenched in what they've been taught their whole, like, we haven't ever seen, we've, nobody alive today has ever seen inflation or in the 30s, they said it, but we haven't seen it. We haven't seen the, and we haven't seen the benefits of it. Um, and, and so it's really hard. To look at that and, and say, so do you get trapped in this world and say, well, if, if it's deflation, then what is going to happen to my asset prices? Mm-hmm. Then how am I going to retire? Mm-hmm. I have this theory. Maybe you can pull, poke holes in it and I can let it go or maybe it's right. But um, my theory, well, a lot of these decisions are, are obviously central bank centric. Um, and my theory is that the Fed kind of had to print their way out, prop up this inflationary economy back in 2008 and now again, because if they didn't, pension funds would have gone bust. And if pensions fund went, funds went bust, in a sense, people's belief in the system would, would uh, evaporate too. If, if, if a whole generation of people worked for a carrot that you know, got taken out of their mouth while they were chewing on it. It's uh, it, 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 so that's only a small part of it. It's your right, but it's a small part of it. So would their houses? So would their loans against their houses? So would the entire so would their banks? The whole thing. In two thousand eight, it was already too late. What the Fed did is they missed the structural change that was happening. Look at the look at the debt creation kind of by year around the world, and it's going kind of parabolic. It's exponential. At the same way, the technology is going the other way. And the Fed doesn't matter. The economists are looking; they're not measuring the impact of um, technology. Like, where does that show up? Right. Seems they're, important. They're, <laughs> it seems kind of important. So, yeah. where does that show up in their measures and productivity gains and everything else? And they're masking the productivity gains that would be there if you allowed the system to actually be. They're fighting gravity, and they will not win. It's like flapping their arms to uh to fight gravity and and so so they're just causing distortions of price nothing is nothing is a free market price right now everything's mispriced right and it's especially stocks and it, but everything's mispriced because every you have one way bet where governments are going to print more money and and so 
So if they don't print more money, that one way bet is going to unwind housing, really everything. Um, if they, if they print more money, it's you'll keep winning. But but your real value of your currency through that keep winning will be destroyed. Now, do you think our best case scenario is some sort of more smooth and gradual and confusing thing that doesn't have such a a chaotic climax or or do you think there's some sort of chaotic climax that as tough as it might be um, is actually maybe going to be the the band-aid that needs to be ripped off and somehow it should have been ripped up off a long time now the problem is so big that the chaos is it's uh it's probably uh, it's let's just say you're a central banker and imagine you even know this, which you might not. What do you do? Right. So instead of us versus them and everything else, let's say you're, you're them. And on your watch, you're going to say, we're going to go into a 10-year depression. right? And, and there's going to be riots on the streets and food lines and everything else. And, there's, and, and, your, house, and um, your house price is going to fall by 80%. Your stocks are going to fall by that. And the banks are all going to fail on your watch. You take that? It seems like what you do, what I would do is quietly buy as much Bitcoin as I can without shifting the price in that buying for as long as I can before. As a central bank you're talking yeah, about? Okay. Yeah. But it, yeah. But it's just, so, so that's going to happen at some point, but it's too mm-hmm. early. At a $170 billion market cap, you couldn't have, you couldn't have right. Apple accumulate some. No, yeah. substantially. Right. So, so that's what's. So you know that MicroStrategy bought mm-hmm. two hundred and fifty million of Treasury yeah. and just announced today that they might put more in uh, into Bitcoin. That is going to move that these mm-hmm. these things as businesses accumulate more is going to move it. Now you're going to have a bigger market cap, for Bitcoin, and then some of the bigger players can drive into it. Um, and and there's going to be so much FOMO created in that process, though, when you talk about, you know. Hundred thousand, two hundred thousand dollar Bitcoin that that uh, correlates with the the market cap size that it would take to absorb more uh, capital going into it. So that so that so what is it now? It's a it, Bitcoin. Is, if it was a currency, I think it's the seventh biggest currency. Mm-hmm. And so as it takes more and more share through the network effect, then at some point you could have other currencies paying to it. All right. So one thing that I've noticed for many years when we talk about the truth is that if it's next to a story that isn't true, that has been comforting people for a long time, it's like telling somebody that their baby is ugly <laughs> and you know they want to kill the messenger. Um, you know, Our listeners are a lot more open-minded and curious uh, and yet I think there's still sometimes a sense to just go, ah, that's, that's bad news. And then something else comes up that's good news and like, ah, yeah, and it's comforting. And then they, you know, they want to just sweep it under the rug. Um, I feel like one of the opportunities we have with this kind of message is to try to break it out from that dichotomy of bad news, good news, doomsday, you know, boom, doom, whatever, like just everything's so extreme, one or the other, black or white. Um, what, uh, what do you think is the trick to accepting this reality 
and finding the silver lining, finding the opportunity and not being that person who's like, oh yeah, that guy's kind of a bummer. He's always talking about the end of the world. <laughs> yeah, well, that's why I said that the businesses that I'm in, the, like I see, I can't believe I get to do what I get to do. I didn't write to, I'm a reluctant author. I did not write the book to make money out of the book. It's done extraordinarily. It became a bestseller in a whole bunch of different regions, and it's doing extraordinarily. But, but that is not that you know why I wrote the book because you read the book. Um, the, um, I cannot believe how lucky I am in everything. So, and technology is the root of that, and, and and what's happening provides abundance. It's incredible. That's actually, and that's how the book is written, right? So it's there's a real positive message in the whole thing, even though the backdrop of what central banks are doing, uh, I disagree with completely because I understand why they're doing it. They're caught in a trap that they created by not allowing capitalism to clear, right? There is no light without darkness. There is no growth without, without recession. The only people who believe that there is are central bankers and economists. Right? <laughs> that, uh, there, there has to be a natural clearing function to an to economy, so so I disagree with what they're doing, but I understand what what they're doing. But I'm generally I'm wildly optimistic about the future. I'm wildly optimistic about what uh, what I get to work every day with entrepreneurs and a whole bunch of different companies that are changing the world and making the world a better place. And I see it every day, um, and uh, and so. So it's, and there's tons of opportunity across different industries where technology is just starting um, to move into, or this technology and this technology are coming together to provide some, where, where value is, is derived differently than it's derived in, in the past. And that's, that, that formation creates incredible companies, incredible growth, incredible value for shareholders, everything else. But the big picture that our kids, the next generation coming behind is going to be dealing with what we're talking about. And the next 10 years are not going to look like the last 10. So, so we both know, we all know um, that there's kind of two ways to reset this and only two, right? And both those two produce pain on both sides. I don't want to put my head, uh, head in the clouds or in the sand and say that pain isn't coming but I want to protect myself and um, as much as possible. And ideally the reason I'm on this podcast, reason I do these is not because you're paying me any money you were making it is. <laughs> it, oh, you got to reverse that Bitcoin transaction. <laughs> <laughs> I just thought you wanted some. Is because, because our life is ultimately measured in the impact we have on others. Yeah. Right. And, and so if, if one of your listeners or if, 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 if what you're doing too in this if you're impacting other people positively, pretty good life. Yeah, yeah that's it's very rewarding. Everybody, uh, you know, before you make good money or get money, you, you really think that it's all about gimme, gimme, gimme. And then you learn if you do succeed that then the reward is really in in giving back and, and helping other people. And that the only way you're going to get uh, sustainably successful in the first place is understanding that the value you receive is only a portion of the value that you gave, the Absolutely. portion that you monetize. So 
And I really wish, Jeff, that more uh, people who've gone out there and done great things would, uh, would do what you've done in, in writing this book. And, uh, you know, I think too many books are written by people who are trying to use it to catapult them to a, some sort of success that they don't have yet. And uh, more people need to take what they've learned and having their own success and, and put that information out there, which is what I think you've done with, with uh, the book. So thanks so much for writing it. I thought it was an incredible book. Um, you know, there was, there was one book that really opened my eyes um, to see the 2008 crisis coming before it happened. Uh, and uh, really grateful to that book and that author. And I think that this book is that one book for, for this cycle for where we are for the 2020s is um, if someone thinks that this is all doom, then it's because they're in the old operating system that no longer functions in current reality. And you've nailed, I think the, the thing that people can do to install the new operating system that works in our current reality. And uh, by reading the book, and then you can't unknow what you learn, and it just kind of puts you down the rabbit hole of being able to survive and thrive during uh, difficult times and times with great opportunity. Yeah, it certainly felt when I was reading it that it was a, a, a stern lesson, but still had a message of hope in it. And I really appreciated that because it wasn't, um, you were treating us like we were adults as the readers, which I, I really think that people appreciate and is lacking a lot today. You know, you're understanding that your readers can handle the truth and they need to know what's going on so that they can adequately prepare for it and adjust as needed. And that flexibility and adaptability, especially when coupled with the technological in- innovations that are happening more and more exponentially, is something we have to do. Thanks, Rachel. I appreciate that. It's 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 actually ironic that uh, like so. Um, what's scarce is valued, right? So if there's a scarcity of the truth in politics today, wouldn't it seem obvious that that by the way that's how I've created value my whole life, understanding where everybody else is and saying but it doesn't look like it, and 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 trying to figure value where they're not, and and so. But what you just said, I would my my hope was in in the book that you'd have some politicians and whether it's this set or the next set behind them that when these set, this set gets all voted out, <laughs> um, the but but politicians would a politician somebody would say, I'm going to I'm going to be truthful. I'm going to so the sure. and, and and hopefully the electorate can handle that, and I'm going to. But when everybody is over here, right? Every scarcity creates an abundance, and so you can and 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 so there's a scarcity today of the truth. There is a scarcity of of, of what we're talking about. It's just an echo chamber of of sound bites and everything else. And can you imagine a leader stepping up? And but you know, people are hungry for it because with all these sound bites. If you go by the numbers, the biggest show in the world is the Joe Rogan podcast. And, you know, we've been watching that slowly grow uh, for you know, maybe seven years. We, you know, they were started earlier than that. And it's you know, three or four hour shows. Uh, and, and they don't, the, the views are there even when a no name person goes on there that everybody didn't already know. It's not just, you know, celebrities and, and things. So people, this is exactly what you're talking about. The long form uh, content 
was so scarce that it became so valuable. And that as it turns out, that's what there was all this super hungry demand for. Uh, and now of course, um, you know, that's, that, that has inspired a lot of other people to create these uh, long form podcasts. Um, and uh, it's, it was, Hey, it was really great to have you on here. Yeah, I think thank you. if you're listening to this, you need to buy the book the price of tomorrow. Uh, it is the operating system to, to upgrade. I mean, you're like on windows 3.1 right now. If you still are thinking in terms of the way that they're talking to you on TV, which by the way, nobody's watching when we get down to the statistics too. So, uh, but we know that people are listening and uh, again, Jeff, thanks so much for writing this book and thanks for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's really good. Okay. That was a good one. Don't you think Rachel? It was, it was amazing. I love hearing his take on technology and deflation. And for me, what I really loved about his book is he melds a lot together. He's talking about psychology. He's talking about economics, capitalism. Yes. He melds the important things together because if you know the history of economics, there's this school of economists called the Austrian school Mm -hmm. that have been very correct over and over and over again. But a lot of the Austrians, so to speak, are not really paying attention to this potential or not potential, this exponential uh, growth of technology. And um, I think that this is the one book that takes some of the main trends you need to use to understand what's going on in the world right now as investors and just as people Um, And you can get that whole message by buying the book. You can buy the book anywhere books are sold. It's called The Price of Tomorrow, Why Deflation is the Key to an Abundant Future by Jeff Booth. And we thank again, Jeff, for joining us. It was an excellent episode. Yeah. And also you can check out the book online at thepriceoftomorrow.com. Exactly. And if you like this episode and if you like the podcast, make sure you give it five stars over on the podcast store in Apple or Google or wherever you're listening. And if you have any questions or ideas for future guests, then please message us at selfdirectedlife.com. Thanks for joining us today. Have a good one. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, everyone. 